I've always found this a hard day to preach on, the Feast of the Holy Family. Not because it's about family, but it, this connection to the Holy Family. So I did what I often do. I went back to check when the feast began, thinking it was very old. It started in the 17th century. Up until then, they had celebrated feast days of Jesus, of Joseph and Mary, but never as the Holy Family. So a, a kind of a cult uh, developed around it. But it wasn't until, I think, 1921 that Pope Benedict XV uh, named it the Feast of the Holy Family. And I don't know, I've looked everywhere for why then? Was there a great deterioration of families? Maybe around the First World War, maybe that was it. But I couldn't find anything very clear. But in addition to that, I thought, do we really relate well to the Holy Family? All the prayers keep talking about imitate the Holy Family. What do we know about the Holy Family? All we know is the stories around the birth of Jesus, only in Matthew and Luke, and then nothing until he's 12 years old and he's lost in the temple, and that's it. So how can we imitate something that we don't have any model about it? However, this is a good context, this story in Matthew. Um, it's just that it's only relatable by certain peoples, I think. For example, I think people in Syria can really relate to this, not only because they're a biblical city from, from forever, country forever, but in addition to that, uh, they're uprooted again. They're torn from their land. Husbands and wives and babies have to move 600 miles because there's bombshells everywhere because they don't have any peace. They're taken from their own land. They can relate. I read a story in the L.A. Times yesterday, I think, about a man, I think he was 91 when he disappeared, and uh, it turns out that he had, the family found out he was lending money to a, a man who said that his daughter's life was at risk or whatever, but he was extorting him or whatever. So when he went to try to get the money back after a, a year or two of doing this, um, he disappeared. Some, some people witnessed that he had been beaten up but he'd been killed, they never found the body. But the most alarming thing, apart from this personal story, it said in the paper, 30,000 people last year were found missing, or not found, missing in Mexico. And I said at the last Mass, I said, I'm sure I got the number wrong. It couldn't be 30,000. Rocio said, yes, Father, it was 30,000, they think it's more. I can't relate to that. Could you imagine? If in a country even our size, if, if that's what they said, 30,000 people were just missing. Well, when you live with that, when you live with narcos and, and all this drug trade and all, and, and never know what's going to happen, and police that are corrupt, never know what's going to happen. Maybe you could relate to this story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Get up, move. Your child is at risk. They want to kill him. Hmm. So having said that, I suppose we can connect our struggles, our pains, and, and the one thing that is really clear about the story is that Joseph seems to be in some kind of communion with God through dreams, um, and, and dreams even today. People will tell me their dreams, and I'm a great interpreter. I'm really not, but I tell them I am. And I say, well, this is what it means. They're, they're, they say they're symbolic. 
For example, if you're flying in a dream, they often say that's a, a desire for some kind of freedom that you're either just coming to find or that you want at this time in your life. And, uh, and they're not foretelling uh, in, in a way that this is going to actually happen this way. It could, but, but that's not what they seem to be. But at any rate, Joseph discovers and, and, and describes it as God speaking to him through an angel and directing him how to keep his family safe. Now, I suspect he didn't say to Mary, come on, we're leaving. I have a feeling it was a little different, that he spoke with her and shared what he had experienced. Now, I, last night at the Mass, I made sure that they did the shortened version of the second reading. And if you were following in your missalette, you were probably a little confused. And at the last Mass and this Mass, I didn't get a chance to say to the lectors, but they read the one that I wanted to read, and I guess it was because there was a second ribbon there. Thank you, God. Because what they would have read, right at the end when she finished the reading, they would have, she would have said this, Wives, be submissive to your husbands. A favorite of the ladies. So I'd like all the ladies, only the ladies, respond. Let me say it first, then you say it. I want to be submissive to my husband. Oh, my God, there was silence. There was silence. But you see, at the time of Jesus, there wasn't silence because culturally that's the way it was. Women couldn't testify in court. Their word meant nothing. They were property. They couldn't inherit property or anything. And if their husband died, if their sons who did inherit allowed them to stay, they could. And uh, if they didn't have any sons, they didn't get to keep the property. They became prostitutes or begged on the street. The Scripture is full of it, full of that story. So in those days, yeah, a woman was submissive to her husband, and that was seen as God's will. But in that same passage it says, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loves his church. And there's the proof of Jesus' love for his church. Put his life on the line. So in a way... It's really not so radical to say the woman would submit to her husband, but he would love her, give his life for her. And it describes what I tell couples all the time as I'm preparing them for marriage. I say, in a word, what I think a marriage must be to be healthy and grow forever is it has to be a team, a team. It's the best word I can think of. So I'll use an example. Maria and I are on a basketball team together, okay? And I'm better than Maria. I just, it's just a fact. I'm number one in the league. Everyone says it, and I know it. And I love the glory. Yeah, I love the glory. So whenever I get the ball, I don't want to give it to Maria or anyone else on the team. I want to take the shot. So I'm in this place. I really don't have a good shot. Scene one, I take the shot, and I miss. So the team doesn't progress. But in a better scene, I'm ready to take the shot, and I realize this isn't so good, but Maria's got a better shot, so I pass it off to her because we're a team. And in this moment, I know her gift is going to serve the team better than my lack of gift here. When you work as a team, everybody shares so that the team may progress. It's not about the individual. It's about the team. And in marriage, it seems to me, a healthy marriage, and this is coming from someone who's never been married, an expert, okay, I, but I look and I listen to marriages. I observe them in my own family. Several nieces divorced. I just, 
One half of marriages divorce. They're terrible statistics. And I believe because for the most part, I don't see teamwork. Now, the readings, the first and second reading, help in this context of this awful story about Jesus, the attempts to kill Jesus. In this context, we hear these stories, one from Sirach, wisdom literature, and it's excellent. It, it does what the wisdom literature loves to do, gives a whole bunch of advice. Do this, do that, do this. Children, be obedient to your parents. Fathers, respect your children. Mothers, don't nag your kids. And it tells all this advice, and it says this is how you'll function well. It gives a plan. It gives a plan. And there's an old saying, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. You plan to fail if you fail to make a plan. So you've got to have a plan. But before you get a plan, what's usually needed is a moment of clarity. Now, in the times today, and this just gave me a moment of clarity for my words today, because it used that phrase, moment of clarity. And this was in a, in a section looking at this last year. All of these events are many events of the last year. The incredible homelessness, the amount of killings, the drug issues, and the list is just awful. And then in this somewhere, it spoke about a moment of clarity. When we get a moment of clarity about anything, it puts us in a position to then follow through with a plan to do something about it. So in the first reading, we get a plan telling people what to do, how to respect one another. But the best part is the second reading, which talks about the formation of the Spirit so that we can do whatever it is that we want to do. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but I just want to read the beginning. This is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Brothers and sisters, put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If one has a grievance against another, as the Lord has forgiven you, you should forgive. And over all these, put on love. That is the bond of perfection. I could go on, but you get the point. It's speaking about forming an inner spirit of love and goodness and kindness and service and listening and sharing and teamwork. Because out of that, any relationship can grow healthy and strong. But you've got to be able to forgive one another. You've got to be interested in listening to one another. You've got to have the mentality we're a team in everything. Now, a moment of clarity. It's not so everywhere in the world. There's places where women still can't drive a car. It's against the law. There's places where if a woman uncovers her head in public, she can be put in prison. I wouldn't be surprised if in some places she can be killed. There's places where women have very little equality. It's not perfect here by any means, but it's better. There was a time women couldn't vote in this country. But for the most part, we've moved to a place of clarity where most of us, or at least many of us, think this way. Women are our equals. They're equally intelligent. They're wise. They're smart. They're compassionate. If we had a woman president, it'd probably be a very different presidency than a man because they bring different gifts. And women seem to have a deeper sense of, of holding family together. 
Men seem to be more competitive. This is the classic way of looking at the sexes. But we look at women and say they deserve equal pay. They don't get it everywhere, but in some places they do because we've had a moment of clarity in time in history where we're beginning to equalize what should be equal. And then out of that, hopefully we develop our plans. When I prepare couples for marriage, I like to tell this one thing because I think it's severely lacking. I think one of the reasons that, that maybe families don't function as good as they could with this kind of rich Word of God, it's because we haven't given the tools. We haven't given any direction. It's our fault as teachers of the church. But it seems to me that when people open up their spirit to one another, things happen. So, for example, I tell a couple that, you know, when you're married, I'd like to recommend that you really develop a life of common prayer. And I don't mean just saying prayers, although our Father, Hail Mary, glory be, and those are beautiful, but pray from your spirit. So I say, here's this. You, you finish the big party after, after the wedding, and it's, it's, you've gone up to the bedroom for the first night of marital bliss. Marital bliss. So the woman says to her husband, Honey, honey, before we go to bed, I want you to know I have never, ever, ever gone to bed without getting on my knees and thanking God for the day and saying my night prayers. And he says, Sweetie pie, me too. I've never, ever missed a night of prayer. Let's do it. So they go in, open the door, go in. She goes to her side. He's to his side, get on the floor. Now, not that any one of us would be there, but if we were there, we might hear this. Amen, amen. Say, what was that? It would be good. They both said their prayers. But what if instead she said, Honey, I've never, ever gone to bed one night in my whole life, even when I've been sick, without getting on my knees and praying. And he says, Oh, sweetie pie, same with me. Let's do it. And then she says, But honey, why don't we do it together? So they take each other's hand, go over to her side. They both kneel down, and she starts, Dear God, thank you so much. Out loud she says, Thank you so much for this man in my life. I'm sure you gave him to me. I'm sure this is your plan. I thank you, God, and I thank you, honey. And I want to say, God, and also, honey, I'm sorry for the way I snapped you at 10 minutes to 11, but I was a little crazy right before the wedding. Okay, so please forgive me. And he says, Of course. And then he says, Oh, God, God, of all the women on this planet, look, wow. And I want to be the best husband I can be, the best partner. I want to be the best teammate with her forever. Bless me. Help me. Give us your love. Amen, amen. They jump into bed. Is that better? I think it is. How wonderful that two people that have committed themselves to love and live together all their life could open up their relationship with their God. They could talk to their God in front of the other, include the other in the conversation. That they could have not just their own personal spiritualities, which they wouldn't lose, but they could have a common one that they both share. And if this were to grow in a couple's life, why wouldn't it spill over to their children? Why wouldn't they sit down with their children and, and pray at night, pray before a meal, in their own words, not just in our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory Be, although those are nice. They'd share from their hearts. 
Now, I'm not a big betting man, but I'd lay a thousand bucks down. There aren't five people here who have done that every night, or even necessarily a few times a week, out loud just sharing with their God in prayer. Because we haven't taught it. We never encouraged it. We never even named it. But it's possible. And you might say, oh, Father, we've been married 32 years. Like, we're going to start doing that? Well, why not? Why not? You might open a new bank account or buy a new car. You might also decide you'll pray together. What the heck? And if we did, what might happen in our spirit and in our common spirit? Today's the Feast of the Holy Family. What do we do to make our families better, healthier, more spiritually profound? Well, I think where we start is at the deepest part, way down in our spirit. 